This is an ABC podcast. With no foreign currency left for imports, medicine, food and fuel are all about to run out. There are many lessons to be learned from the crisis in Sri Lanka. Lessons about corruption, about what happens when a democratic political system loses its way, and there's also a lesson about food security, about what can go wrong when you upend a system of agriculture without thinking through the consequences. Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. The Sri Lankan government has now given people one day off a week to grow their own produce in preparation for food running out. How can you grow so much of food in small flats? In 2021, despite warnings from scientists, the Sri Lankan government imposed a sudden ban on the use and import of synthetic fertilisers and pesticides. Perhaps well-intentioned, but the resulting collapse in agricultural production soon saw the nation begging for international food aid. So in general, this is probably an example of why today you need to look at the whole system and not at part of the system only. Monica Zurich from the Environmental Change Institute at Oxford University. So if you're trying to change agriculture to overall be more on the organic side for all kinds of good reasons, maybe less environmentally impact, maybe less impacts on the health of farmers with pesticides, better soil health, and so on and so forth. The issue with organic agriculture is that if you don't have people willing to pay the premium that most organic products cost, it's actually really difficult to establish a well-functioning new system around organic products, yeah, to actually really achieve the change and with benefits to the people that you want to have benefits for, which are the farmers and the consumers at the end. Issues around food security, future supply, food inequality and waste. That's our focus today. Now, Dr Zurich stresses the importance of adopting a more holistic way of understanding and appreciating what we eat and how it's produced. We tended to think of agriculture on the one side and so to say the consumer end on the other side and for a long time the two things were one and the same so for let's say the last almost 10,000 years people were eating a lot of the stuff that they were growing themselves that of course has changed completely in modern times and now we have a small number of producers in most countries and a very large number of consumers on the other side and a lot of things in the middle. So processors, transport, delivery services, restaurants, catering, retailers. So it's become this very complex, massive set of actors that turn what farmers produce as crops into what we eat as food and what we have on our plates. And so this is why over the last 20 years, more and more people have started to talk of this as the food system, meaning that just changing a part of the system, so for example, changing how agriculture works or changing what consumers would like to have on their plate is actually not going to work in the system when you change something on one side you change something somewhere else and often you have unintended consequences and and we don't really know how to manage these unintended consequences. A good example is we have put a lot of effort into research 
and increasing yields over the years. But that had a huge environmental footprint in terms of carbon emissions, in terms of water use, in terms of soil degradation that were unintended. This is why we need different ways to really look at the whole farm to fork system differently in terms of managing it. And we need different tools and we need different policies to work with what we call the food system today. And one way of taking that more holistic approach would be to establish an overarching plan, which makes sense. But even in an advanced food producing country like Australia, that's easier said than done. Australia has been a major producer and exporter of food for decades, but it still doesn't have a dedicated national food security policy. Researcher and agricultural sociologist, Dr Carol Richards. It's a grave oversight because we're seeing year on year that rates of food insecurity is rising. The Australian government have actually made a statement on food security in Australia and they've said that there's basically nothing to see here, that Australia is perfectly food secure. But they're basing that argument on the availability and the amount of food that's in the system. We produce a lot of food, we export food, we export more food than we can possibly eat. But that's not the issue of food security. That's about the availability. But is it accessible? And to have access to food, you really need to have money in your pocket. And that's where the issue is. It's low-income families, people that don't have access to food because they're running out of food and can't afford to buy more. You know, we, we assume a right to food, like we assume a right to things like water and shelter and housing. It's, it's really bizarre in a country like Australia, in a wealthy nation, that the right to food has been eroded. So we need to reinstate that, make sure that people have the right to food, that they can access food and that they can eat. So it's a matter of, um, you know, rights and human dignity, fairness. It's just unthinkable that we would have working adults even in Australia and their children that are having difficulty in accessing the food that they need to sustain a healthy and happy life. Did we learn anything from the pandemic and the supply chain issues that accompanied it? I think we did, you know. What we saw is panic buying. So one thing is, you know, a concern about the food system and probably a lack of trust in the food system. Uh, So people are starting to think a little bit more about food security and thinking of alternative ways to provision as well. But I think one very interesting thing that came out of the pandemic is the fact that the supermarkets relaxed their private standards. So this is the cosmetic standards that would dictate the size of an apple, the circumference of an apple down to a certain millimetres. That was all relaxed, which got more food into the shops to solve that issue of the surge buying or the panic buying. And we should be doing that all of the time. We shouldn't be throwing good food away due to cosmetic standards. Because those cosmetic standards are responsible for a lot of the food waste in a country like Australia, a rich country like Australia, aren't they? That's right. My colleagues and I over the years have done lots of research with farmers and producers' organisations, and they've told us that much of the food, a large proportion of the food that they produce doesn't ever leave the farm. And there's nothing wrong with that food. It's not blemished. It doesn't have worms in it or anything like that you would expect. It's just that it's not the right size or shape. So it's about, we're talking about millimetres here, or the slight wrong colour. So it's perfectly good food that's not making it into the supermarkets. And that, that's a travesty. We shouldn't be wasting food like that on such a thing as cosmetics. How do they justify that? 
Well, I don't know if they do justify it. I think, um, you know, it's always been the elephant in the room with the supermarkets. Woolworths CEO, for example, talks about radical transparency within that organisation. But I would challenge them to publish their food standards so that we can all see how and why food is being wasted. There are various supermarket chains operating in Australia, but there are two really dominant ones, Coles and Woolworths. That's right. Does that kind of domination of the market, does that really impact upon things like food security and food policy? That has a massive impact. So what we're talking about here when we talk about a supermarket duopoly is market concentration, where you've got two major players and thousands of people supplying to them. That means they can play suppliers off against each other, and that's what suppliers or producers or farmers often report to us privately. It's very difficult to go out in public and say this because you don't want to bite the hand that feeds as well. So with that market concentration comes power, and the power that the supermarkets wield at the moment is excessive because they basically govern people outside of their own organisation in relation to how they produce food. So the shape and size of food, again, back down to the millimetres or the colour or the shading of the food. And that's what forces farmers to throw a lot of that food away. I've spoken in the past to mango growers and they've said 40% doesn't leave the farm. So there would be differences in each market segment or each um, food group, depending on what's being grown. It's a cost of doing business that we just throw food away. And 40%, if you're talking tonnage, for a major producer of food like Australia, that's, a, that's an awful lot of food, isn't it? It's an awful lot of food. And the problem with that is, is not only are we wasting the resources that go into that food and we're affecting the, the bottom line for farmers who are you know, quite often working under difficult conditions, that rotting food is also contributing to the production of methane, which is a really potent greenhouse gas. So there's no good argument for doing this at all. It's wasteful in so many ways and it's a negative effect on the environment too. Associate Professor Carol Richards from QUT, the Queensland University of Technology. In recent years, there have been great stresses on farming and farm production associated with climate. Fires have devastated large swathes of farmlands in Australia, China, Europe, North and South America. In Pakistan, there's also been severe flooding. And then, of course, there's Ukraine. The Russian invasion and ongoing conflict has severely affected both the supplies of wheat and fertiliser. And all of that, says Peter Alexander from the University of Edinburgh, will all of it inevitably means that we'll continue to see a rise in the price of food. But as with everything associated with food security and food inequality, it's all much more complicated than it seems. We've had a historical 50 plus years where food is becoming cheaper and cheaper relative to incomes particularly, but, but then in real terms as well. And perhaps this is the end of that era of cheap food. And that sounds like a bad thing. And, and certainly for people who could remain malnourished, you know, 800 million people who are, who are undernourished today, probably more because of the recent events, is clearly, clearly something we need to think about. But in general, in much of the world, cost of food is not representing the real true cost. You know, it doesn't have the, all the environmental burdens associated with it. Greenhouse gas emissions, the water use, the loss of biodiversity. So the end of cheap food is certainly needs to be carefully managed, but it doesn't necessarily bad in itself. We're going to have to think about changing our diets to, to be more mindful of those true costs 
And obviously, if you're eating fruit or veg that's been air freighted from the other side of the world, that doesn't make a lot of sense in many ways. But that doesn't mean, I think, there will be this sort of the end of the global food system and the trade in food. Hopefully it will mean a more balanced, more sort of environmentally aware food choices. And this sort of potential end to cheap food is maybe part of that. You know, that sort of, if you like, forces us to value the food on our plate or in our cupboard rather more than we have historically and to think about the source of that food and the environmental implications from its production. So I think society to some extent has been jolted into to thinking about these issues rather more than we have for the previous decades. And, and if you like, that's a silver lining to some of the situation that we have at the moment, that we do have that sort of reflection on those inputs and those outcomes and putting a greater value on, on that food and changing our behaviour consequently to, to take it more into account. So I think that could be um, a benefit if you want. And then there's the issue of definition. What do we actually mean when we use the term food security? And indeed, what do we classify as food? So if we come back to the original definition of food security that the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN has developed, you know, with a lot of the different policymakers, we talk about food security when we have sufficient, nutritious, safe food for people and people have access to this food. So this is a very shortened version of it all. Yeah. So if we look at the number of hungry people around the world, we have made huge strides over the last 40, 50 years and reducing the number of hungry people until about 2015, when that trend of having less hungry people around the world plateaued or stagnated. And now since around 2015, we actually have more hungry people around the world again. Around 800 million people or so are estimated to go to bed hungry every day. Yeah. But that's only the one coin of food security. So in that sense, particularly over the last few years, the whole concerns about hunger have definitely come back up onto the agenda of policymakers. At the same time, the definition of food security also says sufficient food. That means also not too much. And we have in every country around the world a growing obesity crisis and a growing crisis of what's called hidden hunger. So that means people are not getting the right nutrients. They might get enough calories, but they're not having the right nutrients on their plate for a healthy and productive life so that either they're overconsuming, meaning you're going towards obesity with a lot of secondary effects of diabetes, heart disease, and so on and so forth. And as I say, this is literally in almost every country around the world, we see a rising obesity trend. And we also have a lot more people around the world that don't get the right nutrients. So they might not be obese, but they might have other deficiencies like vitamin A, where then you might have problems with vision, you know, or zinc deficiencies where immune system is not working properly. So again, it's how do we measure the success of the food system. So from a pure food security point of view, no country in the world currently is food secure in the strict sense. And we have actually lost ground over the last five years with respect to hunger and also obesity. It's an interesting point, isn't it, that we don't tend to think about. We don't think about the nutritiousness of the food that is nope. available to us. That's that's not part of the general discourse or the public discussions that we have. 
So that also reflects very much how the whole food community and agriculture community has moved over the last 50 years. So traditionally, food security and all the food security discussions, particularly coming out of the Second World War, you know, when the FAO was founded, when a lot of the policies were set in place that we currently see around the world to maintain food security, it was all about providing enough calories to people so that they could actually survive. So that was the whole hunger agenda that we also have then seen translated into a lot of development policies for countries around the world. That changed in the 1980s, 90s, with the nutrition community coming in and saying, you know, hi, we might have enough calories on people's plate, you know, if they have access to it. But then the nutritionist came basically and said, if we have enough calories, that doesn't mean that we have healthy people. Because of that, what's called hidden hunger, you know, wrong nutrients or too much of a good thing. So we have to reshape what we think of in terms of food security. And that debate has continued. That's why the FAO definition, the word nutritious food was included in the definition in 1990s, 2000s to ensure that it's not just enough calories, but right nutrition that we are striving for. And then, of course, with rising obesity level, that word sufficient became part of the definition as well, because as I said, if you're having too much of a good thing, you're also not healthy enough to actually lead a productive life, which is what at the end, the, so to say, the measure of food security is all about. Aside from making the right choices about what's farmed and what's eaten, there's also transport and cooling requirements to take into account when talking about nutrition. In rich countries, food is kept cool from the fields right through to the kitchen. And that network of refrigeration is known as a cold chain. I mean, the cold chain protects the quality of the produce. So it's absolutely essential. I mean, let's put it in context. I mean, 12% of food globally is lost primarily because of no cold chain. In developing countries, you know, you can see sometimes as much as 40% of food is lost post-harvest. And for me, food saved is as important as food produced. Toby Peters, a professor in cold economy and a co-founder of the African Centre of Excellence for Sustainable Cooling and Cold Chain. The initiative we launched and developed back in 2018, we then secured some $20 million of funding from the UK government and Rwandan government to develop this. And what we've done is we've got a campus in Kigali in, in Rwanda. But what we're doing, the, the, the problem with the cold chain, if I can just step back, is that it's got lots of pieces of equipment which all have to work together seamlessly from farm to market, often you know, over long distances. So that's a, that's a sort of challenge in and of itself. But at the same time, you have to have the skills, you have to have the business model. And we also have to make sure we do it sustainably using uh, renewable energy and climate friendly refrigerants. And so what we're doing at ACES, the Africa Centre of Excellence for Sustainable Cooling and Cold Chain, is we're bringing together into a first of a kind centre, the training, the skills and the capacity building to address all these aspects of the cold chain. So we're training farmers in, in, in why they should be using cold chain, how to deploy it, 
what's the business model? We're training the refrigeration engineers who can then install and maintain the equipment. We're helping new technologies demonstrate and trial their equipment. So it's an integrated, full system approach to the challenge of sustainable, clean cold chain. Why was Rwanda chosen? Why that particular country? Rwanda was chosen because it's a good country to work in. It's a manageable size. The government was engaged. And from there, we can then expand out to the rest of Africa. So we've already started work on a spoke in Kenya, and then we're looking at other spokes throughout Africa. And we've also now started work on second centres of excellence in India. Given that, you know, in a country like Rwanda, there are a great number of small-scale farmers, you know, who are probably making not very much from their produce. Are we likely to, to see people not being able to afford to take part in a cold chain, even if it's well, available? That, so that's the whole point of ACES, is that one of the big challenges to access to cooling cold chain is the financial model. If you're earning, you know, you've got subsistence farmers earning, you know, maybe $100 a month or less, and they can't afford pieces of equipment worth costing $20,000 or more just for one one element of this. So what we're looking to do at ACES isn't simply train people in, as I said, in how to select the right equipment or manage and install it, but actually help them with identifying what are the business models, how you can servitize the technology, how you can bring communities together to give them access to it. Because the big challenge we have is how do I provide the resilient cold chains to feed 10 billion people by 2050, recognising, you know, that, say, example, in Africa, 80% of the food comes from subsistence farmers and achieve this without using diesel. And the business model is a key element of this. We can't address the issues around economic security of communities, of access to safe food, malnutrition, all of these issues without a cold chain moving the food from farm to market. It's interesting, if you look at Rwanda, Rwanda, to meet its its targets, needs to grow its food production, I think it's 15 times. If you have a well-functioning, resilient cold chain, and you address the issue of food loss in the chain, you actually only have to grow the volume of food nine times. So it makes a material impact on this overall issue, but it's fundamental to society. Toby Peters, and this is Future Tense. New ideas, new approaches, new technologies. I'm Anthony Fennell. Okay, we're just about to commence session five, so if everyone can take their seats. Whilst the proportion of hungry people, about one in nine, has not changed significantly since 1987... At a minimum, projects should aim to do no harm. No single food or nutrient is a silver bullet. And None of these challenges are things that any government can solve on their own. They are going to need partnerships. Voices from the annual conference of the Crawford Fund for a food-secure world. Up for discussion at that gathering were many of the things we've been talking about today, like ensuring appropriate and realistic policy settings, taking a holistic approach to the entire food production and supply chain, and getting the technology right. And on that last point about technology, the conference heard some less than encouraging news. Agriculture is a high-tech industry in many parts of the world, and food security has benefited enormously from technological advances. 
But according to Professor Philip Pardy from the University of Minnesota, the share of R&D, that's research and development, well, the share of R&D that's flowing to the sector is patchy, to say the least. Definitely the trends in many parts of the world are not heading in the right direction. In Australia, they've sort of come back a bit after tailoring off for a few years. In the US, certainly the public sector investments have been declining quite dramatically. So in inflation-adjusted terms, the US is investing in university research and US United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA, at levels now that were last seen in the early 1970s. So there's been a big disinvestment in the US. And it's true in other sort of richer countries in the world that there's either been a flatlining or a backing off of public investments, but not in all parts of the globe. In some of the larger middle-income countries like China and India and Brazil, there's been actually a doubling down of investments in food and agriculture. And so the reasons, I think, are complex. I mean, one of them is uh, there's just lots of other demands for the attention of policymakers for uh, investments on, in scarce uh, public dollars. And in the R&D space, there's been a big growth in uh, investments in health R&D relative to perhaps uh, investments in food and agricultural R&D. And certainly, you know, growing concerns about sustainability and environmental aspects. And so a big increase uh, in research related to those areas as well. So I think that the broader concern, Anthony, is the the general spatial concentration of food and agricultural R&D. So back in 1980, just the top 10 countries alone accounted for 65% of the entire world spend, and that's grown to 68% of the entire world spend. So that's quite a dramatic spatial concentration. If you look at the, the other end of the spectrum, the, the bottom 50 countries, particularly many of those are in sub-Saharan Africa, which is, you know, sub-Saharan Africa is the fastest growing region in the world in terms of population. They accounted for just 0.6% of the spend in 1980, and that has fallen down to 0.4%. So what we see in these data is A, a big spatial concentration, which is getting more concentrated, but B, a growing global divide in who does the agricultural R&D. And so the world's sort of bifurcating into a set of scientific haves versus a set of scientific have-nots. And those countries that are investing in research and development, how much sharing is going on of that knowledge? (laughs) Good question. Uh, One of my concerns is that there's a lot less sharing going on now than there was in years past. Partly that's because of the nature of the countries doing the research, but I think there's also another aspect of that is to who does the research. And so what's happened over the last three or four decades is that the private sector is taking an increasing share of that global agricultural R&D total. So they now account for around just over half of all of the food and agricultural research done in the world. And so that has direct consequences not only on the types of research done, but also on aspects with respect to data privacy and with respect to access because of intellectual property and other concerns around that research. Are there specific areas of of agriculture that could do with greater research and development? Certainly a concern I have is that as we've not only been in certain parts of the world slowing down or even cutting back on investments, we've actually been shifting the nature of those investments such that We've actually been cutting back on productivity-enhancing research. The investments in R&D have been instrumental in driving productivity growth, that is getting more output for the same input or even reducing the inputs in agriculture. And we've sort of reached the limits on, on many of the natural inputs going into agriculture in terms of the sort of 
land that can sustainably be used in agricultural production. Around half the world's land mass is actually now in agriculture. So we don't have much physical room to grow. We're certainly pushing the limits and going beyond the limits on water use in agriculture. And so there's a lot of concern about sustainability issues which relate to a sort of more encompassing view of agricultural productivity than we've taken in the past. So it's not only the the labour and the capital and the seeds and so forth that go into agriculture that are key inputs, but all these natural inputs are certainly being pushed to or past their limits. And so we need to be doubling down on investments to try and not just maintain yields, but to increase yields and increase productivity because we're going to have another 2 billion people on the planet by 2050. And that's a lot more mouths to feed. At the same time, we've got lots of risks emerging with respect to climate change and plant and animal pest and disease risk and so forth that are really starting to undermine our existing productivity levels. A challenge in both sense of the word. Philip Pardy there from the University of Minnesota. We also heard today from Toby Peters, Monica Zurich, Peter Alexander and Carol Richards. The producer for this edition of Future Tense was Jennifer Leake. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.